Just above my newspaper, I saw a lady sitting opposite me, and then lights went out. I have the image of her face to this day. She died. As darkness came, there was a very loud noise of the crash. Metal and glass breaking. No screams, all in the fraction of the second one takes to breathe in. It was all over in no time. Passenger Javier Gonzalez. This was the mortgage tube crash. And this is the good, the bad and the pure evil. So the London Underground, also called the Underground or Tube, is a public-like subway system in Britain. The first line opened in 1863 and by 1975 it had 250 miles of route track. In 1975, 3 million people used this service each and every day. That year it also was one of the safest methods of transport in Britain. Apart from suicide, there was 14 deaths on the underground from 1938 until 1975, 12 of which were in the 1953 Stratford crash. Moorgate Station was in the City of London at the southern end of the Northern City Line. It was the interchange between the underground network and the suburban overground services. This station had 10 platforms, 7 to 10 are on the deep level and 9 to 10 are for North City line services. At the end of platform 9 was a red warning light atop of a post as well as a sand drag to stop overrunning trains. This was inside an overrun tunnel. This tunnel was unique as it was designed to accommodate larger mainline rolling stock and so was wider than the standard tunnels. There was a buffer stop like a stop block, but it wasn't really working before the crash. It was at the end of the tunnel, right in front of a solid wall. So Old Street Station was the stop before Moorgate, and it was on a fallen gradient that would level off at 71 metres to Platform 9. A scissors crossover was just before Platforms 9 and 10. A speed limit on the line was at 40 miles per hour and then that came down to 15 miles per hour entering Morgate Station. From the November of 1966, the Northern City Line ran 1938 rolling stock. Weekly checks happened on the stock brakes, doors and compressors. A six-week six check was done on the equipment and then a yearly the cars would be lifted on the bogies for examination. February 28, 1975, the first shift was driven by Leslie Newson. He worked for the London Transport since 1969, driving for Northern City Line for only three months before the crash. As a driver, he was known to be careful and conscientious. So the day of February 28, Newson came to work carrying his work satchel with a bottle of milk, some sugar, his rule book and a notebook. He had £270 in his jacket to buy a second-hand car for his daughter after work. Staff said Newsom was his normal self, had a tea before the shift, sharing his sugar and joking. The first return trip of the day was Drayton Park and Morgate, starting at 6.40am, and it was completely normal, nothing to report. Robert Harris, who was 18, started working for the London Underground in August 1974. 
On February 28, he was running a little late, not joining the train until it returned to Morgate at 6.53 a.m. Newson and Harris did three return trips before they undertook the final journey. On board was 300 passengers, most of which were commuters. It was also a Friday and the peak of rush hour. The train left Old Street to Morgate. It was a 56 second journey, but Harris, he got bored and left his position at the guard's control panel, which had the emergency brake, and he went in search of a newspaper. While he didn't find one, he went instead to read the advertisements on the walls at the rear of the carriage. Coming into Morgate at 8.46am, the train did not slow. It passed at about 40 miles per hour, under power and no brakes applied. Later, the signalman said the train looked to be accelerating as it passed along the platform. Witnesses on the platform said they saw Newson sitting upright, facing forward, uniform and hat, with hands appearing on the controls as far as they could tell. Entering the overrun tunnel, the brakes weren't applied and the dead man's handle was still depressed. Sand kicked up from the drag when the driver's cab crawled into the buffer. The carriage separated from its bogey and the coachwork was forced into the end wall and roof. The first 15 seats were crushed. The second coach was forced under the rear of the first. It then buckled at three points into a V-shape with its tail and its rear forced into the tunnel roof. The third car had both ends damaged. 42 passengers and the driver died. 74 people were injured. The crash remains the worst peacetime accident on the underground. The first call for help came at 8.48am with the London Ambulance Service arriving at 8.54am and the fire brigade at 8.57am. At the same time, the London police had made St Bartholomew's Hospital aware of the crash, but at that stage it wasn't known of the seriousness. A casualty officer and medical student were set to assess the scene. Fifteen minutes later, a resuscitation unit was sent, still though the hospital staff were unaware of the scale. The police also contacted the medical unit of BP, Dr Daniel, Donald Dean, with two doctors and two nurses walked to the station to assist. They would be the first medical assistants at the scene. Quickly, Dr. Dean realized he didn't have enough pain meds with him or in BP stores. He would go to a nearby Boots Pharmacy who gave the doctor alder morphine and petadine. Once the fire brigade inspected the scene, they upped the status to a major accident event. From this, more fire tenders and ambulance were sent. One of the hospital doctors described it as, quote, the front carriage was an indescribable tangle of twisted metal and in it the living and the dead were heaped together, interwined among themselves and the wreckage. It was impossible to estimate the number of casualties involved with any degree of accuracy because the lighting was poor the victims were all tangled together and everything was covered with a thick layer of black dust. Many of the victims were withering in agony and were screaming for individual attention. It was obvious from an early stage the main problem was the disentanglement of a heap of people 
many of whom appeared to be in imminent danger of suffocation. End quote. By 9 a.m., the last casualty was taken from the third carriage. By 9.30 a.m., the roads at Moorgate and outside were cordoned off to help the emergency teams coordinate better and allow ambulance in and out for the injured. A circular route was organised through the carriages to get equipment in, emergency services in and the injured out. Firemen cut holes in floors and ceilings for access. At 10 a.m., a medical team arrived making up a makeshift operating theatre near the triage team. Platform 9 was 70 feet underground. Fire and ambulance crews had to carry equipment down to the scene. It was so far down and shielded by concrete that the radios didn't work. Runners would be the messengers, but confusion came into play, with messages wrongly relayed like Chinese whispers. For an example, a doctor below would ask for a painkiller Enton Ox. By the time it got relayed to the top, the message was the doctor wanted an empty box. The fire brigade had an experimental radio system called Figaro. They deployed a small team with this and it did work at the depths. Throughout the day, the crews worked in conditions that became difficult. The crash had thrown up soot and dirt into the air. Everything was covered in a thick layer of residue, which was very fragile and easily disturbed. The lamps needed to see and cutting equipment needed to free passengers, raise the temperatures to 50 degrees Celsius. And then the oxygen levels began to drop. Ventilation in the deep lines usually came from the piston effect. This is created by trains forcing the air through the tube lines. But with services stopped due to the crash, no fresh air was getting to the platforms. To try to get some air down, a large fan was placed at the top of the escalators to force air down, but it kicked up the soot and dirt, only creating little draft, so the fan idea was soon abandoned. By noon, five injured remained to be extracted. By 3.15pm, two remained, a 19-year-old police constable, Margaret Lyles, and the London Stock Exchange, Jeff Benton. The pair were in the front carriage trapped. Lyles needed to be removed first, which only could be done by amputating her left foot. At 8.55pm, she was removed, with Benton removed at 10pm. Once Benton was removed, everything that made a noise was turned off, and silence fell among the crew. Shouts were made to anyone to call out for help if trapped, but no responses came. A site medical officer declared time of death on all the remaining bodies in the wreckage. After this, removing the dead and clearing the wreckage began. With no living left to rescue, the fire brigade would now use flame cutting equipment. At 1am March 1st, the third carriage was cut away from the second. The third carriage was then winched down the track and as it moved, a deceased soul fell from the wreckage onto the track. Once the carriage was removed, a doctor again checked for any signs of life, and there were none. Using the flame cutting equipment had its own issues. Oxygen levels dropped 16% and the smell of decomposition from the bodies was beginning to become noticed by the workers. The crew could only work 20 minutes in a tunnel or platform and then they had to go above ground to recover for 40 minutes. The crew had to wear gloves and masks reporting any cuts big or small. 
a company donated an air conditioning unit which did help with the air in the tunnel. By March 2nd, the wreckage of the second carriage was cut away. Cleanup was round the clock, but a break happened on March 2nd at 10pm when a bomb scare was called in. This had the crew evacuated. March 4th at 3.20pm, the last passenger's body was removed. Newson's body was removed March 4th at 8.05pm. By March 5th at 5am, the fire brigade cleared the last of the wreckage. Over 1,300 firemen, 250 policemen, 80 ambulance crew, 16 doctors and several nurses made up the rescue and cleanup crew. Normal traffic didn't return on the line until March 10th. March 4th, Home Officer Pathologist Keith Simpson did the post-mortem on Newson. He found no physical reason like stroke or heart attack and initial findings showed no drugs or alcohol in his bloodstream and no damage to the liver from drinking. Lieutenant Colonel Ian McNaughton was instructed by Secretary of State for the Environment Anthony Crossland on March 7th to investigate the crash. The inquiry began March 13th but was paused after a day and a half. In that time it was found that mechanics of the train were working and no known problems with Newson's health but results were still pending. McNaughton was confused with what exactly the cause could be but he continued on with the inquiry. A coroner's inquest was from the 14th to the 18th of April 1975. David Paul, the coroner, was not happy that the government inquiry start before it and was out in the public. He felt it could affect the inquest jury. 61 witnesses gave evidence. Toxologist Dr. Ann Robinson analyzed Newson's kidneys, finding a blood alcohol level of 80 mg 100 ml. She would explain that during decomposition there is a biological process that produces alcohol so it can't be definitely concluded if the alcohol detected was consumed or produced naturally. But she would state it was likely he had been drinking. The level found was and still is today the legal limit in England for driving. Newson's widow said her husband rarely drank and David Paul agreed. He said it wasn't the type of person he had heard Newson was and that more tests were needed. On the final day of the inquiry, Dr. Roy Golden or Goulden, would have the same findings as Robinson, but because of the natural production of alcohol, you couldn't say he was drinking before the crash. The jury returned verdicts of accidental death. March 19th, St Paul's Cathedral held a memorial service. 2,000 mourners came, including those from emergency services and Newson's wife and family. March 1976, McNaughton published his report. McNaughton wrote no test showed equipment fault and the dead man's handle was not defected. X-rays would show Newson's hand was on the dead man's handle. There was no electrical burns on Newson's skin or clothes, suggesting no electrical fault happened. He'd mentioned Harris as an idle and undisciplined, but wouldn't be experienced enough to have done anything. The report concluded, quote, 
the accident was solely due to a lapse on the part of the driver motorman Newson. End quote. McNaughton would also look into the drunk possibility. An expert would inform him with the level suggested 80mg 100ml wouldn't account for the crash. McNaughton also looked at the suicide theory but ruled it out as Newson had driven the route for nearly three hours before and the fact he had future plans of buying the daughter's car that day. But Harris would testify about Newson overshooting a platform days before and a passenger reporting another overshot a week before. Suicide expert Bruce Danto would say the overshoots to him were, quote, don't sound like misjudgment. That sounds like a man who is getting the feeling of how to run a train into a wall, end quote. McNaughton would look at the possibility of daydreaming or distracted but concluded when the train went over the scissor crossing before the platform, the driver would have and should have snapped back into focus. Medical evidence would be given to the inquiry, raising the possibility Newson could have transient global amnesia, or agonizes with mutism, where patients lack the ability to move or speak. But this couldn't be proven. So McNaughton found there was, n was insufficient evidence to say if the accident was deliberate or not. July 1978, approval was given for Moorgate protection. Moorgate control to be introduced at all dead-end termini on manual driven lines. At platform line, three timed tra train stops were installed. So if the train passes any of these more than 12 and a half miles per hour, the emergency brakes would apply. Resistors were placed in the traction supply of the trains to prevent acceleration when entering the platform. The accident also brought about changes to the signaling. It changed the given approach control delay yellow when the line was clear and red plus a subsidiary aspect when the line or platform was partially occupied. A memorial list of those who died was unveiled in Finsborough Square July 2013 after a long campaign by relatives and victims and supporters. February 28, 2014, a memorial plaque was unveiled by Lord Mayor of London on the side of the station in Moore Place. What happened can never be undone and it would never be forgotten. And that is the Morgate Tube Crash Tale. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe on my YouTube and my podcast and join me next time for the story of Charles William Davis, American serial killer and rapist who attacked many women in Baltimore from 1974 until 1977, killing at least three. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.